0: The kingdom is spreading, O oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory, as waters that cover the sea.
1: Acts chapter 14, verses 18 through 28. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 18. And with these sayings they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church, and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Today's reading begins abruptly in the middle of a tense and difficult situation where we left off in our last reading. Paul and Barnabas were driven by more opposition and persecution, even to the point of a plot against their lives, to leave Iconium and continue working to the east in Lystra. This was a heavily pagan region, so much so that there was not a Jewish synagogue for them to use as a base of operations, and they began preaching in the open square near the gates of the city. During the course of their preaching, a lame man was convicted that Jesus had the power to heal him, and Paul took that opportunity to manifest Christ's power so that he might be glorified in the minds of these people. But tragically, the effect was quite the opposite. Latching on to a local legend, the people of Lystra assumed that Paul and Barnabas were the gods Zeus and Hermes in the forms of men and they called for a priest to offer sacrifices to them. The two ministers of Christ frantically protested, and Paul preached an impromptu sermon about the glory of the one true God over and against the idols of the pagans. But picking up in verse 18, Luke says, And with these sayings, that is, the words of Paul's sermon, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Evidently, they were able to interrupt the proceedings, but just barely. It is possible that out of the confusion and disappointment that would have followed in the hearts of the townspeople, Paul was able to finally explain the real power by which he had worked the miracle, and it seems that he was able to convince some there to follow Christ because, in time, there is a congregation in this city. However, at some point after this, trouble followed Paul and Barnabas from their former fields. It is the discouraging and often miserable plight of the servant of the Lord that those who want to attack a good work will not be satisfied with much short of the absolute ruin of the worker. I've seen villainous assaults against a man in which for whatever reason, perhaps pride or bitterness, the attackers allowed themselves to reach a point that nothing short of death and hell would be a satisfactory end to their enemy's story. So it was here. Verse 19 says, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. So these were not only those from the previous city, but from the city before that. Paul's enemies had communicated and had conspired against him and were pursuing him. The verse continues, And having persuaded the multitudes, this statement is a little enigmatic, but the subsequent scene indicates that they convinced a large crowd, seemingly the majority of the city, to think that Paul was not merely not a god, but was in fact something more like a demon, a dangerous force that had caused trouble and strife everywhere he had been and was never allowed to stay in one place for long. And now he would bring who knows what sort of calamities into Lystra if he was allowed to live. They may have claimed that he was empowered by an evil spirit, or they may have claimed that he was a trickster who was trying to gather followers for himself and to turn people against the local institutions. Remember that the unbelieving Jews had already determined to kill Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, and likely it did not take a great deal to work the embarrassed and uncertain heathens of Lystra into a furor, and to think that the best way to handle the situation was to sacrifice the troublemaker for the sake of the community. So verse 19 continues, "'They stoned Paul,' and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25, the Apostle Paul, in listing some of the things he had suffered in his service to Jesus, said that once he was stoned. He must have been referring to this event. Some people suppose that he died, and that his spirit went to heaven to receive revelations and that God raised him from the dead, and he described this event in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4. But this seems unlikely that his comments in that place were looking back at this occasion, because the chronology doesn't seem to line up appropriately. It's more likely here that Paul did not die. Perhaps he was kept alive by the power of God, or perhaps he was just tenacious and resilient, or perhaps they threw one stone too few. He seems to have appeared to be dead, which caused his opponents to abandon his body. And you can just imagine what it was like for the Christians, those who had only recently come to faith in Jesus because of Paul's preaching, as they rushed to gather round his corpse and mourn the tragedy that a man, blessed by God with such good news, had been so terribly silenced. And then they were amazed as he began to stir. And then he stood, and he went back into the city. It's possible he stayed that evening to convalesce in the home of Lois and Eunice, or perhaps one of the other new Christian families there. Verse 20. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Derby was about 20 miles to the southeast of Lystra, and unless Paul had experienced a miraculous recovery from the injuries sustained by the stoning, it would have been an extremely difficult trip in his condition. In Derby, they at last found some peace. At least Luke records no cases of opposition or conflict. He simply reports that they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. Because of their arrival to and departure from Asia by sea voyage, those trips would not have been made in the winter, it's likely that Paul and Barnabas spent two winters in the highlands of Galatia, one in Iconium and another here at Derby, So the experiences that Luke reports in just a few sentences actually covered months and even years. However long they spent in Derby, when the time came for them to leave, it's noteworthy that they were not far from Saul's home city of Tarsus, and had they journeyed there, it would have been not much farther to return over land to Antioch of Syria. We have another component in the apostolic model for missionary or evangelistic work presented in these scriptures. The apostles were not content to baptize people and then leave them to fend for themselves, even in the providence of God and the care of the Holy Spirit. They considered it a duty in the process of making disciples, as Luke described their work in Derby, using the very word of Jesus in the Great Commission, to teach all things that Jesus had commanded, and furthermore, to install the necessary structures and features that Jesus ordained for the stability and growth of his congregations throughout the world. So rather than take the short way home, they doubled back and marched to return through the hostile territories from which they had previously fled, for the sake of the brothers and sisters they left behind." Verse 21 says, They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. This is a fascinating passage, and if we're accustomed to only understand the phrase the kingdom of God in reference to some distant period of splendor on the other side of the second coming of Jesus— Or even if we think that the phrase only and always refers to the church, we might be hopelessly confused here. Paul's words would be nonsense if the kingdom of God is something that will not have any manifestation in the world until the return of Christ. But it's also true that these people were already in the church. They had believed and been baptized, and God had moved them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. He had redeemed them and constituted them as his people and his congregation in the world. Then what does he mean by entering the kingdom of God? I suggest the meaning here is the same as when Jesus told those who live in his kingdom to include in their prayers to the Father the petition, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6 and verse 10. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God has already come to earth, and Christ is already reigning and endowed with all authority over the whole of the universe. But there is also a sense in which the phrase, the kingdom of God, refers to Christ's total work in history, to redeem the sinful, fallen, corrupted world back to God the Father. That work is not finished. God has promised future stages of glory in its unfolding, even in history before Jesus returns again to complete the work and give the restored all things to God the Father so that God may be all in all. In previous studies, such as our consideration of Peter's sermon at Solomon's porch in Acts chapter 3, we learned that part of the work which will bring the kingdom of God to its fullness in this world is the conversion of sinners. When men and women believe in Jesus, repent, and are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, that hastens the fullness of time. But here, Paul states that there's more to be done than simply to be converted. The kingdom comes into our lives, and we come into the kingdom by having our souls strengthened in the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God, by continuing in the faith and by passing through many tribulations. Through these things, God purges our old sinful habits and rebellious struggles, and forms the image of Christ in us, and brings us to unity in Him, and fills us with His knowledge and glory. As we come more and more abundantly into God's kingdom, then through our lives the kingdom of God comes more and more abundantly into the world. Now verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is a passage I want to dwell on for a little while. One writer noted that appointing elders was a part of the work of making disciples. And I believe that's exactly right. It is exactly what the apostolic procedure here and Luke's comments on it imply. I want to note a few things about the eldership from this simple narrative. First, elders are not simply old people. The Bible says they were appointed or ordained to use the word of Paul in Titus chapter one and verse five. The eldership is called an office or a position in first Timothy three one, and for one to serve in this office, the Bible says he must meet certain qualifications that relate far more to his gifts his lifestyle, and his character than to his age. See Titus 1, 6-9 and 1 Timothy 3, 2-7. In the same vein, the eldership is a position that carries with it a certain kind of delegated authority to rule the congregation. That's the consistent language of the apostles when discussing the work and role of elders. The terms pastor and bishop or overseer are also used for this same office. Second, Luke says they appointed elders, a plurality, in every single church. A plurality of elders or pastors or bishops, remember those are all interchangeable terms for one position, in every congregation was the only form of church government known in the apostolic age. Third, it was in every church This was the only way, and it was universally employed. Fourth, they appointed them with prayer and fasting. We've seen and discussed these practices in relation to the ordination of church officers in earlier studies, and although Luke does not explicitly mention the laying on of hands in this record, it's likely implied by the word appointed, which literally means to stretch out the hand, if not by the mention of the other procedures. The point being... There was some divinely instructed ceremony here to demonstrate the solemnity of the occasion and to visibly manifest before the church that the Holy Spirit had made these men overseers to shepherd the flock of God, Acts 20 and verse 28. Perhaps the most striking point about this narrative, however, is that these churches were perhaps less than a year old when the elders were ordained from their membership. Furthermore, some of these congregations were made up largely of former pagans with no background in the faith. While I do not allege that the apostle puts unqualified men into the eldership, I would suggest that if our theories of the qualifications of elders cannot allow for something like this to happen, then our theories are obviously incorrect, and they should be reconsidered. If the apostles could do this, There is simply no excuse for congregations decades or centuries old which have never had elders and allegedly never produced qualified men to serve in that role. After the appointment of the elders, Luke says they, that is Paul and Barnabas, commended them, that is the congregations, to the Lord in whom they had believed. To commend them to the Lord was to formally, perhaps through prayer, entrust their future to the providence of Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus would care for them did not mean that they could survive without teaching and leadership. In fact, Paul says that pastors or elders are gifts which King Jesus has given to his people for the accomplishment of his purposes in them, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Verse 24. And after they had passed through Pisidia, They came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. You may remember that they were in Perga once before, but they did not seem to linger there to preach. This time they do preach, but seemingly only to fill their time well as they wait for a ship. The ship does not come, and the preaching seems to have been generally ineffective, so they moved to another port where they were able to find passage home. From there, that is, from Italia. They sailed to Antioch. This is Antioch on the Orontes, from which they had been sent out on this journey about three years earlier, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. This is simply another way of saying that they had been commissioned by the congregation here, and now their mission was accomplished, and the church acknowledged it. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, They reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Another part of the apostolic pattern for mission work is the sharing of reports. By this report delivered in an assembly, the congregation which sent them out became full spiritual participants in the joy of the harvest. Luke says they reported all that God had done with them. This is the proper perspective of evangelism. God is the great evangelist, and he has graciously invited us into his work. He had invited them into his work on this occasion, and they praised him and adored him for the privilege. When Luke says that through this work God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, The expression seems to mean something more than Paul's usual use of the term an open door in reference to a providentially given opportunity. In this case, it appears to be a theological term. The law of Moses, which like a wall separated the Jew from the Gentile, had been torn down, and it was replaced by the door of faith, a door through which any man could walk by the grace of God, and find righteousness and peace. Verse 28. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Next time we'll consider some of the possibilities of what took place during this long time. For now, we marvel at this amazing work. They had traveled over 1,200 miles. Without the luxuries of modern transportation and established more than half a dozen churches in the face of violent opposition and persecution. They were led by the Spirit of God, by providence, and by wisdom and zeal, into places where the response seems to have ranged from joyous excitement, to dead apathy, to bitter hatred. They went to large population centers and first sought out people of like mind, but even if the culture was far removed from their own, They did not allow anything to stand in the way of their proclamation of the one consistent message, Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and redeeming. If we today wish to share in their successes and victories, we would do well to emulate their strategies, or at least to come as close to them as we possibly can. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians, of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week
0: from all the dark places of earth's heathen races oh see how the thick shadows fly the voice of salvation awakes every nation come over and help us to cry the kingdom is spreading oh tell ye the story god's better exalted shall be THE EARTH SHALL BE FULL OF HIS KNOWLEDGE AND GLORY AS WATERS THAT COVER THE SEA WITH PRAISING AND SINGING AND jubilant RINGING THEIR ARMS OF REBELLION CAST DOWN AT LAST EVERY NATION THE LORD OF SALVATION WITH GLORY THEIR EFFORT SHALL CROWN the kingdom is spreading, O oh tell ye the story, God's banner, exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.